up to 2 Kings, and we're going to take a look at, I think, uh, 10, 11, or 11, and 12. Let's take a look. 11 and 12? Oh, you guys are so good. <clears throat> Last time we talked about how God brought the hand of judgment through uh, Jehu. Jehu comes in and he, he deals with the problems in the land. He, uh, he wipes out Ahab. He wipes out uh, the Baal worship. But remember, he was a tool used of God, but he was not God's man. He never served the Lord, never followed the Lord, never really wanted to. He was kind of about his own thing, doing his own his own program, establishing himself. In the northern kingdom, the judgment of God came. A lot of blood was shed and a lot of people lost their lives, but things never got better spiritually. So often, I think we have a twisted perspective. We think when the judgment of God comes, then finally men will get it. But when you read scripture, that's not what you find. When the judgment of God comes, it's too late. And God's finished. He says, I will not always strive with man. I will not always strive. The good news for you and I, he will not always strive with us either. In, in terms of a believer, when the, when the Lord says, I will not always strive, it means this chastening, the chastening of the Lord only goes to repentance. You don't know the Lord, the chastening of the Lord doesn't ever stop. The judgment of God continues. But now we come to the southern kingdom. And you remember, when Jehu came in, he killed both kings. He wiped them both out. He killed the Hazei and he killed, uh, uh, what's his name? Thank you, that's the one. So a Hazei is the one we're going to look at tonight. A Hazei... When he dies, in chapter 11, we see his mother taken over. His mother takes over. Look, it says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. That's Bible speak for grandma just killed all her grandkids. That's a, that's a pretty thirsty for power, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. I, I can't imagine doing that as a grandpa, killing my grandkids so I could have power. But that's where Athalia was. Don't forget who her mom was. Athalia's mom was Jezebel. You remember Jezebel? Jezebel was the power behind the throne of Ahab that led the northern kingdom into idolatry. And now Jehoram, the king of the south, married Jezebel's daughter, Athalia. And they had a son named Ahaziah. And Ahaziah was a wicked king, and they began to institute in the south, which typically had been more God-centered, they began to institute in the south idolatry. And this idolatry began to lead people's hearts away. So when the judgment of God fell on the north with Jehu, it also affected the south. And it wiped out Ahaziah. Now, I have a question for you. Maybe you guys remember. The southern kingdom still followed the dynasty that was the dynasty of Israel. Do you remember whose dynasty that is? That's David. You remember David's dynasty? Solomon, his son, messed it all up. The kingdom splits. His son ends up south. Uh, the rebellion goes north. The people split. The ungodly go north. Basically, the people more concerned with the Lord, though not 
completely go south. And that's the division of the kingdom. Who's Messiah coming from? He's coming through the line of David, right? So Ahaziah died, and Grandma killed all her grandkids. How's the Messiah come? You realize that if the devil, the devil, by planting Athaliah with Jehoram, by having Jehoram marry Athaliah, so you have someone of a basically godly line, though not a godly man, marrying a very ungodly woman, and, and you think, well, what's this really going to affect? She wiped out the whole line of David, except for one little baby. That means you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and God making a promise. And the promise that God made was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That God would send his Messiah, born of a woman, and that, she, that, that this Messiah would destroy the power of Satan. Later on, God made a promise to David. David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. Messiah is going to come through your line. Your line will give birth to Messiah. Do you realize how close the devil was to wiping it out? One baby. Can a baby fight for itself? Can the baby deliver himself? Not any more than you or I can. Now, according to God's perspective, they weren't even all that close. Because God says, I don't know what everybody's so excited about. I still had one. But when I read it, that is an amazing aspect of the story. That the line of David is wiped out except for one baby. Look what it says. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, the sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah, so he was not killed. So the baby, he's a baby. He's not even a year old. She saves the baby as the baby as the, as the king's sons are being killed. Now Athaliah, Ahaziah uh, 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 didn't rule that long. We're not talking about adult kids. We're talking about little kids. We don't know how many. All we know is Grandma wiped them all out and assumed the throne. And Grandma, Athalia, is going to rule in the southern kingdom for six years. There will be a queen ruling over the nation of Israel for six years while the child grows. And when he comes to the ripe old age of seven, he's going to take over. Is that not mind-boggling to you? It's kind of mind-boggling to me. You know, we, every year, every four years, <laughs> I get riled up thinking that maybe some political change is on the horizon and things will change and get better. And, uh, you know, I'm disappointed most of the time, no matter who ends up in office, it just doesn't seem to quite, you know, fulfill all the dreams of what, what we would like to see. Do you realize that God is going to deliver the southern kingdom into a revival through a seven-year-old? Seven. Is God able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that works in us? God's going to use a seven-year-old. That's pretty cool. The greatest revival ever is going to start through an eight-year-old. I think greatest as far as I'm concerned anyway. 
Solomon, when he took the, the lead, was 12. God is able to move and to work and do incredible things. And we think it's always got to be something big. But you know, sometimes it just starts with that baby. Sometimes it just starts with a, <clears throat> a one-year-old. Sometimes it starts with just one person not being willing to do what everybody else is doing. How did Moses come to be? Everybody else was having to send their children down the Nile. Moses' parents hit him. They thought that God must have a plan for him. They saw a future in, in his life. They knew they couldn't keep him forever. But rather than just throw him to the crocodiles in the river, they made a raft. Right? Now you tell me, a baby in a raft, what's the chances? Pretty good. You know, the baby's going to land. He's probably watched a little bit of Survivor Man on TV. So he knows what plants he can eat. Right? No, it's no hope. They did what they could. They put him in a raft. They let him go. Did God do the rest? Yeah, God does the rest, man. God is so able to move beyond our circumstances. And we tend to put God in this little box and say, this is as much as God can help. This is as much as God can save. This is all that God's going to be able to do. And this is such a horrible thing. But the reality is, God's done a lot more with a lot less. What he does require is his people to have enough faith to trust him, even though everything looks impossible. But you know, when we get down to it, most of us, our struggle is, we got more faith in ourselves than we have in the Lord. I think the grace that God gives us is a measure of faith. He gives us faith. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? That Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Author, that word author means he's the originator. He originates, he gives us that faith, the faith with which we can trust him, that we can put in him. That's, that's the whole concept of receiving Christ, I put my faith in him. But as soon as I put my faith in him, and then I, I think I, there's a whole bunch of other things I got to do, where's my faith really? It's in me. Look at Jehu. Jehu says all the right words. He's wiping out all these men. It looks like the the righteous hand of judgment from God. But in all the things that matter, where he should submit himself to the Lord, he is in control. He's calling the shots. He's making the decisions. He's ruling. He doesn't really care about what God has to say. He uses God to get what he wants. But his heart never belongs to the Lord. So we have this incredible story tonight of this woman who had the faith now she's the daughter of king joram that means a hazy eye is her sister because it doesn't call athalia her mom i'm assuming that her mother was a different woman oftentimes the kings married multiple wives in order to make peace treaties with other nations i don't know where uh, typically she came from chronicles may break it out a little bit more but but I didn't run down that rabbit trail. What I did see is she had enough faith to see what was happening and grab the baby. Take the baby out of the room. Protect the child. She takes that baby. says in verse 3, So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years. Now here's what you need to know about Athalia. Athalia was a Baal worshiper. 
The safest place to hide anything from her was in the temple. She never went there. She never worshipped God. She didn't care about that. She was into Baal worship. Remember, that was what God's problem he had in the northern kingdom. That's what Jezebel brought in. This is Jezebel's daughter. She's just like her mom. She's taken over the, the rule and the reign and the nation, and she is caught up in Baal worship, false worship, idolatry. So where do they hide the baby? In God's house. In God's house. For six years. Six years. I wonder what they thought during those six years. How long is this going to take? <laughs> I probably would have thought at least another 12 or 14 years. I, I don't know about the seven-year-old being on the throne. But look what happens. It says he was hidden in the house of the Lord. Is there a better place, by the way, to be? Is there a better place to be raised? You know, I hear people all the time talk about, about what a hardship it is for ministry kids because they're at church all the time. I, I grew up in church my whole life. I grew up in church my whole life. I grew up having an opportunity to hear the Word of God all the time. You know what I learned? I learned that church was a place where I could be. I didn't have to be something better or something else. I could be. There's way worse places to be than in the house of the Lord. And you want to see a cool sight? Go next door in that room where all them kids are standing worshiping. Go look at all those kids and what they're learning, how they're growing, what God's doing in their life. There's a lot worse places to be than in the house of the Lord. He's in the house of the Lord six years. Six years God takes care of him. While Athaliah reigned over the land. Now in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the hundreds, of the bodyguards and of the escorts, and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. So he sends out a, the, the, a call. Jehoiada is the, is the priest. So Jehoiada, he knows the, the king. He's, he's now seven years old. He, he sends out to the captains of the hundreds. And he says, you come to the house of the Lord. So he gathers together the people who are over, men who are over other men. And he made a covenant with them. So before he'll tell them anything, he says, come into the house of the Lord. We need to make a covenant. You need to choose right now. Before you know, you're in or out. Before I tell you anything, you're in or out. If you're in, you make a covenant with me. If you're out, see you later. So they make covenant. They make covenant. The, that word to make covenant means to cut covenant. You remember when they cut covenant, what they did is they divided animals in half and they met in the midst of the two animals. And they promised, what happened to this animal happens to me if I break my promise. You know, God cut covenant with Abraham. You remember, right? So they, he covenants with these guys. They, they make their promises. They come to him in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. Now the whole nation thinks the line of David is gone. Greatest king they ever had. The promise of God through David was the Messiah. So that means there will be no Messiah. There will be no deliverer. This is it. It's over. And now he brings those guys in and he shows them the king's son. All their hope is wrapped up in a seven-year-old child. All their hope for a future 
I don't know. I think sometimes we would look at that and say, then there is no hope. But I think what we need to understand as we look at God's word is there always is hope. There is always an opportunity. There is always the room for God to move and do miraculous things all the time. We got a brother in the hospital right now, right? We got Keith in the hospital, bone cancer, had a surgery. He's in a lot of pain, having a hard time. They're actually going to move him to Desert View. Have they moved him yet, Lori? He's over there now? So he's over in Desert View, which makes it a lot easier for us to go over and see him. He's just a couple of blocks over. But we, the doctors, all the hope the doctors have, by the way, is not a whole lot. I don't know if you ever had a chance to sit and talk with doctors. I know Anna has talked with doctors about cancer. And there's not a, they never are standing there telling you how much hope there is. They're standing there telling you how bad everything is. But with God, there is always hope. God is always able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. God delivers an entire nation with a seven-year-old. What can he do with us? If we, like this seven-year-old, will give ourselves to the Lord in the same way. Remember what Jesus said? Suffer not the little children. Let them come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of God. Sometimes we get to be an old and we think we have something to add. But really, you and I, we don't have any more to give to God than that seven-year-old did. But if we give ourselves, little is much in the hands of God. God is able to do so much more than we can even begin to imagine. So look at verse 5. He hatches a plan. So he commanded them, saying, This is what you will do. One-third of you will come on duty on the Sabbath, and you shall be keeping watch over the king's house. One-third will be at the gate of Sur, and one-third will be at the gate behind the escorts. And you shall keep the watch of the house, lest it be broken down. The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath will keep watch of the house of the Lord for the king. So the whole, these captains of the hundreds are all gathered around. He says, you guys, basically, we're going to divide it into thirds and you're going to protect the king. We're going to make an, an, an annunciation. They're going to bring him up. They're going to crown him. And they don't want anybody to be able to touch. A seven-year-old can't fight for himself. So they're going to have the army around him to protect him, to watch over and keep him. But look what happens. Verse 8. You will surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapon in his hand. And whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. For you are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. So the priest sets up the protection of the king. Sets up that the king, they're not going to let anything touch him. They're not going to let anybody get to him. So the captains of the hunters did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. Each of them took his men who were on duty on the Sabbath and those who were going off duty on the Sabbath, and they came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave the captains of hundreds the spears and the shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. Now, ever since David, after Solomon, they stopped keeping their trophies in the house of God. See, their trophies belonged to other places, in their own house, fancier buildings. You remember Solomon, he built the the forest of Lebanon, this huge room where he would put all these shields of gold and, and he put all these things for basically the trophies of the battles that they had won. But you know, when David was serving the Lord, when he won a battle and got the spoil, you know where he took the spoil? He took it into the house of God. 
He left it there. And I'm sure a lot of people said, now this is the dumbest thing ever. And what good is a house of God ever going to need shields and spears for? Well, we're several generations down the road. And now the last heir of the line of David is seven years old. And the people guarding them need weapons. And they're in the house of the Lord. You know that God way ahead of us is making provision for things we don't even know that we need yet. But God is already laying the groundwork. God is already establishing the move. God is already putting the things together. In your life, in my life, in everyone's life, God is moving that way. The things and the choices and the groundwork that you lay may be for your grandkids. The kingdom of Jeff Master's house may go to Heston one day. Unless Debbie makes you get rid of it all before that. There are things that we can't even begin to imagine that is laying the groundwork for the future. We just trust the Lord and do what God's asking us to do. And He provides. He provides a way. So they have everything they need. Guys, this is where our trophies belong. Where is your, where is your joy? Is your joy in the house of the Lord? Or is your joy in the man cave? In the, in the trophies on the wall or, or the accomplishments that you have? Or are, is, your, is your joy in what God has done and how God has delivered? Because that's how David was. And so that's how God established and, and worked through him. In verse 11 it says, And the escort stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, all around the king from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar in the house. And he brought out the king's son, and he put a crown on him and gave him the testimony. What's the first thing he gave the king? Was the word, the Bible. Do you know that every king was called to make a copy of the Bible? They hadn't done it for a long time. But every king had the charge to make his own copy of the word of God. To sit down every day and write it out. Write it out. What's that force you to do? It forces you to take a look. What does God say? What does God's word direct? I don't know how, how you learn, but for me, once I start writing something down, it really starts to establish it in my mind. I start to really grab a hold of it. And so the king would write it out. Wouldn't that help the king stay on track? Well, they hadn't done this. The king hadn't had the word for years. In fact, later on when we're waiting for Josiah to come on the scene, we're going to see the word of God had disappeared again. And the nation once again is caught into idolatry as a result. The first thing they give him is the word because the word of God is so vital. Jesus said you need the word of God like you need food. Do we need food? Last I checked, most of you are still eating. And maybe you'll go a day. Maybe you'll miss a couple meals. I, I obviously am having too much. But others, there are probably some people who, who are much more conscientious about what they eat maybe they just have a carrot every day but they have something jesus said man will not live by bread alone but by how many words every word so not just a couple of them not just the new testament not just the fun books it's amazing we could just do fun books you'd be amazed how many people come out for fun books revelation he said every word, 
Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall live by every word. That he should need it like he needs his bread. Jesus spoke those words after 40 days without food. So how do you think he was wanting? You, do you really think he was in the wilderness not hungry at all because he's God? Because the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 that he laid aside all his royalty and divine power and came as a man. So when he suffered, he suffered just like you and me. When he was hungry, he was hungry just like you and me. The Bible says when he healed, he healed how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you heal? Same way. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So you're saying he wasn't God? No, I'm saying he was 100% God, 100% man, that he laid aside the use of his divine power. I did not say he laid aside his attributes. I said he laid aside his power. He is all God all the time. And after 40 days in the wilderness, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The first thing they gave a seven-year-old was the testimony. By the way, at this time, that is probably the first five or six books of the Bible. It might have only been the Pentateuch, which is the first five. That's what they gave him. Here's the testimony. You need the testimony. You need this in your life. They made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. So listen, the kings in Israel are always anointed at the temple. And the queen, who's in charge of everything, never goes to the temple because she worships Baal. So she's not there. She's out doing her queenly stuff. She don't even know what's happening. But all the people that she rules, they still come to the temple. And when they start to hear something's going on, what? what's going on? Look at all the soldiers. Look at all this stuff. What's happening? All of a sudden, they wheel out this seven-year-old kid. They pour oil over his head. What was that oil symbolizing? The anointing of who? The Holy Spirit, man. They're pouring that oil saying that he's now anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's the power to be the man God wants him to be. And they put that crown on his head and they hand him the word of God. And they say, long live the king. And just like that, it's over for Athalia. You remember how much bloodshed there was with Jehu? Remember I told you on one hand you'll see revival? Not so much bloodshed. There's still a little, but not so much. But on the other hand, the judgment of God, that's all this destruction. The grace of God and revival, not so much destruction. People have an opportunity to turn, repent, and live. The judgment of God, destruction. Man will not strive with man, or God will not strive with man forever. His days are numbered. Judgment is guaranteed to come. Where do we find ourselves today? We find ourselves in a time of grace. In a period when we are looking for, desiring the revival of God to change the hearts of men. The Congress is still trying to change the nature of man with laws. You cannot. You cannot change the nature of a man with a law. You can only change the nature of a man by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the only thing that changes men. So long live the king. The queen, she's out worshiping some other god. 
they, they pour the oil on him, they crown him. Verse 13, now when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. Hey, what are, you, what are all these people doing here? And when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to the custom. And the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, Treason! Treason! It's too late. How do you call that treason? Grandma killed all her grandkids so she could have power. And about the time we think, I can't even imagine something like that. We see stuff like that all the time. You can just go home and turn on the news and watch it for a while. There are whole nations that build schools around missiles, missile sites. You want to you wanna know why the Hamas is always up in arms that Israel killed children? Because they hide behind them. They put their missiles, they launch their missiles from the backyards of schools. They know what's going to happen. They know there will be retaliation. They know kids will die. And the world will clamor and shake their fists. But they're the ones who put their kids in the middle of the battlefield. We don't understand that concept. But that's the heart of an unregenerate, the unregenerate. So look, Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hunters and the officers of the army and said to them, take her outside under guard and slay her with the sword, whoever follows her. For the priest had said, do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her. She went by the way of the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. Now you remember when Jehu came in? He was killing everybody. Bringing everybody who ever worshipped Baal. Hey guys, come on in here. And we're going to have a big party to celebrate Baal. And then when everybody got in, he locked the doors. Remember? Killed them all. Killing everybody. That's judgment. In this case, we have Athalia who's been slain. Not everybody. Not everybody related to her. Not everybody even closely linked to her. You have Athalia. Then look at verse 17. Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people. He cut covenant again. Only this time it's for the people. Hey, you guys were following this lady and you allowed all this stuff to go on. This is the heir. This is of the, the last child of the line of King David. He's going to rule. You guys have to decide if you're going to follow him or not. So they cut covenant. They promised that sprinkling of the blood would have occurred in the same way as it did back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In verse 18 it says, And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal. So here we go. <clears throat> revival begins. The king is crowned. That's how revival always starts. When God's people choose to submit themselves to their king. In this case, it's a seven-year-old. In, in our case, it's when we decide to submit ourselves to the Lord God Almighty. When we give ourselves to him. The Bible says one day God will force every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But we have opportunity and revival when we submit ourselves to God. We present ourselves to Him. We're His tools. The initial thing that takes place is God's people get excited about serving God and they go tear down the altars. They tear down all the things that were dividing them between, that were coming between them and God. 
So they run into the, to the temple of Baal, the temple that Athaliah had had constructed. They go into this temple. It says all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal. And they tore it down. They tore it down. They didn't go through and kill everybody. They went through and tore down the temple. They thoroughly broke in pieces the altars and the images. And they killed Matan, the priests of Baal, before the altars. Jehu killed everybody who ever walked into the temple. They just killed the priest. I'm sure the priest is not wanting to, to turn away or stop. So he's removed. He's taken out of the equation. There still is a measure of judgment that comes in the midst of revival, but it's measured. There's a whole lot more repentance and change happening in the south. As the people are decided, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to follow him. They tear it down. They tear down the temple. <clears throat> and then the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. So we see revival begins. People submit themselves to the king. As they submit themselves to the king, there's a fruitfulness in their life that takes place. And they tear down the altar, the things that are separating them from proper worship of God. Next, they set up for themselves officers of the temple. That means they are coming back to the true worship. They are coming back to the worship that Jesus talks about in John chapter 4. When Jesus says, all those who desire to worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. For the Father is looking for such to worship Him. And so the call for that proper worship, they are setting up for themselves officers over the house of the Lord. Verse 19, he took the captains of hundreds and the bodyguards and the escorts and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. And they set him on the throne of the king. So all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. Seven-year-old on the throne. And the things are going to change. Revival has begun. People's hearts are turned back to the Lord. Look at chapter 12. So in the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash becomes king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. Zebiah, far south in the southern kingdom as you could get. She was not anywhere close to the northern kingdom. He reigns 40 years. Look at verse 2. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Uh, did you catch that? Let me do it again for you. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Let me tell you. Jehoash starts really good. He don't end so great. Jehoiada the priest, as long as Jehoiada the priest is there to guide him and to direct him and to share with him the truth of God's word and to keep him on task, Jehoash, he does good. He, he does right. But the Bible doesn't say he, he did right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of his life. Other kings, that's what it says. In this scripture, it says he did right as long as the priest was with him. But as soon as, as soon as he loses that godly influence in his life, we're going to see Jehoash stumble and fall in the end. 
Man, it's so exciting to see a great start, but isn't it so much more satisfying to see a great finish? To see someone finish well? But Jehoash, he struggles, and here's the beginning of his struggle. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, here's why Jehoash falls. This is why Jehoash doesn't end well. But the high places were not taken away. They took out the temple in the middle of the city. They took out all the public areas. They took out the place in the middle of the city where everybody could see. But they didn't deal with the high places. The high places were areas in the country where people could go away up on a hill and offer worship to some other god. They didn't deal with those things. The high places symbolize those areas in our private life that, that are places where we just love to go and bask in some sin, some thing, some issue. And he didn't deal with those. He dealt with the public stuff. And he, and he, and he looked, everything looked good and revival gets going and they start to tear down things. But the revival doesn't go completely through. It comes to a place, the high places, and the, oh, those are little things. It's just a little thing. I don't need to bother with the little things. So he didn't bother with the little things. And the little things get him. The little things cause him to stumble and fall. The little things cause him to turn his back on the Lord at the end of his life. Because he left the devil a foothold. Can you think anywhere in the scripture where it talks about the devil having a foothold? I know there's one that you're not supposed to let the sun go down on your anger. It gives place to the devil. It gives the devil a place to start to wiggle. It gives the devil a place to work. Do you know that the Bible commands us, Matthew chapter 18, if you've got a problem with your brother, that you're supposed to make it right before you offer anything to God? Before you offer anything, before you offer the sacrifice of praise, before you give a tithe or an offering, if you've got a problem with a brother or a sister in the Lord... You are supposed to, commanded by God, to make it right. You know that costs you something, right? It's just a little thing. Just a little thing, and it's so much easier if I just ignore it. And after a bit of time, pretty soon, I don't even hardly think about it at all. But the Bible says, if you have ought against your brother... You leave your gift at the altar and you be reconciled to your brother. Paul says in the book of Romans, in as much as it is possible for you, be at peace with all people. Sometimes we use that to comfort ourselves. Well, I tried. I don't know how hard you tried. Jesus made peace. Did you pay attention to what that cost? Jesus went to the cross, and through the cross, through his sacrifice on the cross, he made peace between me and God. There was a big chasm there. He made peace. The reality is sometimes we just don't want to die to our own self, our own selfishness, our own whatever. We like to feel the way we feel sometimes, so we don't want to deal with it. Maybe we're leaving the high places. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. We think that that is only between a husband and a wife. Really? Do you think that? That he, he means only in a relationship of a husband and a wife, but certainly not between 
two brothers or a brother or sister or folks going to the same church. Then it's okay, right, to let the sun go down on your wrath and, and give the devil that foothold to begin to plant in your heart the seed of bitterness. And that seed of bitterness begins to grow. Maybe it doesn't plant it in your heart. Maybe it plants it in their heart. And they fall away from the Lord and end up someplace else as a result. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. You left the high place. You left the high place in your life where you could worship self. Where you could bow down and say, I'm okay. I shouldn't have to do this or I shouldn't have to do that. And that bitterness, that root in your heart begins to get hard. And then your heart gets hard and you can't really receive the word of God anymore like you could before. And you're not really sensing the power of God moving and working in your life. And while there's still blessing because God loves to bless his children, there's just not that peace that there has been before. But, you know, maybe it's the church. It doesn't matter where you go and what you do. If you leave a high place, it will tear you down if you don't tear it down. He's seven years old. But he reigns for 40 years and he allows the high places to remain. He allows all that stuff to still go on. And as he comes toward the end of his life, as he comes toward the end of his race, the hardness in his heart is not perceptible anymore. The Jehoash at the end doesn't look like the Jehoash at the beginning. But it took 40 years to get there, so he doesn't notice a change. Have you guys ever noticed that? You ever been away from like, I don't know, nieces and nephews, you haven't seen them for years and years and years, and then you see them and you're surprised at how much they've grown, but in your mind all that time they were still that six-year-old that you left? But the reality is they've changed a lot. It's the same way in our life. We don't notice those slow, subtle changes in our life. Jehoash didn't notice a slow, subtle change in his life, but his heart is hardened and it's turned away from the Lord. It says in verse 4, the one thing that Jehoash tries to do. Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord. Each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord. Let the priests take it to themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple, wherever any dilapidation is found. So the temple is over 100 years old now, and it, it's needing a little help. And so he says, well, just we'll take the, the money that comes in, all the money that comes in the temple, and we'll fix it. It's not only Jehoash that's the problem. It's not just his heart. The people were still going to the high places. They didn't tear him down either. So where do they see it? The house of God just slowly falls into disrepair. Walls are broken down, windows are busted, things aren't getting fixed, things aren't getting handled. And the king says, use the money to do it, but the money, there's no money to do it. Look at what it says. It says, now, it was so by the 23rd year of King Josiah that the priests had not repaired the damage of the temple. For 23 years, this was their job. And for 23 years, they got nowhere. Does that not boggle your mind? Well, think of the last four years. 
Any changes happening around here? Anything's going on? Has God, Spirit of God been moving? If things, can you imagine going 23 years and not having anything happen? Nothing. 23 years, nothing happened. Why? Because the people allowed the high places. The priests, they allowed the high places. The king, he allowed the high places. And so they were moving forward because they're still worshiping at the high places. They're still worshiping at the altar itself. They're still worshiping whatever. You put it, whatever face on it that you want. Their, their gods had names back then, not Harley Davidson and Corvette and the farm. Their names had other. Molech, Baal, it's all the same stuff. It's all money, power, success. If we allow the high places to remain, the fruitfulness stops. Growth ceases. Not only that, if you, if you just turn to the right to 2 Chronicles 24, 2 Chronicles kind of deals with this same uh, section. The chronicler gives us a little more information than what we have in here. But in uh, 2 Chronicles 24, he tells us that folks have been breaking in and stealing. So you got 2 Chronicles 24, beginning at verse 4. Now it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from the year to year, and see that you do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. So the priests didn't really care about it. It didn't matter to them because they didn't tear down their high places either. So the king called Jehoiada the chief priest. That's the priest who was given Joash counsel. And said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection? According to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the assembly of, of Israel, for the tabernacle of witness. For the sons of Athaliah, remember her, she's the queen mother who just got killed. The sons of Athaliah, the wicked woman, had broken into the house of God. And had also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to Baals. They took all the dedicated things. That's the utensils that were used for worship. That's the things around the ark. The stuff that filled the room. The things that they used that was a basic part of the high priest's duty. They broke in. The sons of Athaliah broke in and stole it. And <clears throat> gave it to Baal. But don't you see the priest... They were satisfied. They were satisfied. They sat down and they said, it's pretty good. We got a good king. Things are good enough. Let's not rock the boat. Let's just leave things like they are and we'll just stand in the status quo. And unfortunately, some of us, that's our Christianity. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be look too much like a Christian in the workplace. Or I don't want to... Listen, they're drawing lines out there. Are you guys paying attention? They're drawing lines. The church is going to get shocked. You're not very far. Just so you know, the Republican uh, National Committee is going to flop on their platform, and you will see them come out and support a gay marriage soon. Gay marriage will pass. It will be added. It's a constitutional right. It will be then 
on the face of the church to have developed some type of a language within their bylaws so that the state cannot force you to do gay marriage. Calvary Chapel has been putting out that work for the last five years, saying it's going to come. Then, once it's a constitutional right, once that has been established, it will be a crime. Already on TV, you watch, if you watch any of the, the detective shows, the lawyer shows, or a variety of different things, you'll see cases coming up where a Christian says that it's an abomination in the eyes of God to be homosexual, and they are, are, are then placed in jail and accused of a hate crime. Now, it's happening on TV. It's not going to be very long before that's the attitude of the courts. It is already the attitude of the nation of Canada and Australia and the Netherlands. You could not teach Romans 1, 2, and 3 without being guilty of a hate crime. Lines are being drawn. Sooner or later, God is going to force the people that are in the church today to decide if they are all in or not. Because if you are all in, it will be illegal. We have to decide. I don't know if I really want to rock that boat. We can just stay right here, you know, not really pick sides, stand in the middle. Folks, either the word of God is true, every word, every dot, every comma, every space, everything. You can stand that at all, but if you're only going to stand on part of it, you're not standing on nothing. Now, that being said, do I think the church has been right in everything that they've done all through the ages in regard to that particular issue? No. No, that particular issue, by the way, homosexuality is no worse sin than lying, stealing, or committing adultery. And before we all think we can get out of here and say, I haven't done that, remember what Jesus said. If I look at a woman and lust after her, I have committed adultery in my heart. If I have been angry at my brother, I am guilty of murder. It's no different. By the way, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16 that there are seven things God hates. It's not in there. Did you catch that? What's in there? A lying tongue? A gossiping mouth? A proud look? Oh! We don't like to think about that. We're going to have to deal with our high places. We're going to have to deal with our high places. Homosexuality is sin? Absolutely. It's not a worse sin than another. How do we deal with all those other sins in the church? We preach the truth of what God's Word says. We ask the Holy Spirit to give us victory over the things we struggle with. And we define ourselves by our relationship with Jesus Christ and not by what we do. That's a good stance. Days are coming. Lines are drawn. Sides are being picked. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests. And he said, why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now therefore, 
do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damage to the temple. And the priests agreed that they would not receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. What? The king said, go repair the damage of the temple. And the priest said, well, okay, we won't collect any more money, but we're not fixing this place. You see, the, does this remind you of a nation? Of a nation where one guy's trying to establish some change and, and whoever else is a part of the rulership doesn't want to do what they want to do? It should remind you of the last 200 years of the history of the United States of America. We, where, where the entire government can, cannot get on one page to do something for the common good because they're too busy worrying about whether or not it's going to line the pockets of the guy who got them elected. Same thing's happening way back then. It did, we didn't invent it. It was happening back then. The priests wouldn't do what the king wanted them to do. They said they wouldn't collect any more money, but then they, they cheat. Look at verse 9. Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in his lid, Set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags, counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave that money which they had apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters, and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord. So Jehoiada comes in and says, man, forget it. He puts a chest with a hole in it. And everybody who walks by drops a little change in it. When it fills up, he'd take the money out and give it to people who were going to do the work on the house. But the priests wouldn't join. They wouldn't get behind it. The king's trying to make something happen. Now, at this point in history, the history of Israel, the king then takes over the control of the temple. So you come to the time of Christ, you have Herod the Great. Who was involved in the renovation of the temple? Who, who fixed it? Herod the Great. He fixed it. The king took over the job that the priests were supposed to do because the priests were too busy thinking about what was theirs. What's mine? What do I get? So it says in verse 13, However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, articles of gold, or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men to whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. The money from the trespass offering, the money from the sin offering, was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. The priests were worried about what was theirs, so they held on to what was theirs, and they start. They paid a little bit to the guys who were doing some of the work. But you come to verse 17, it says, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Then Hazael set his face to go to Jerusalem. Hazael, that's a Syrian king, remember? He's one of the hands of God's judgment. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things from his father's, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Ahaziah, kings of Judah, whatever they had dedicated and his own sacred things and all the gold found in the treasury of the house of the Lord and in the king's house. And they sent them to Hazael, king of Syria, so he went away. So they raised all this money to do the work on the temple and they end up giving it all to the king, Hazael, who's coming 
to do battle against them. Rather than face him in battle, they pay him to leave. And they end up in the same place they were before. Verse 19 says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed him. Oh, great. Well, let me tell you why. In Chronicles, it says that after Jehoiada's death, the priest, remember the priest we talked about? He did what was right as long as that priest was around. After Jehoiada's death, Joash brings in idol worship. He has a man named Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada's kid. That's the priest who raised him. He has Jehoiada's son stoned for opposing his acceptance of idolatry. As a result of all these moral failures, he is severely wounded by the Syrians in battle. His officials finish him off while he's recovering. When the priest died, he killed the priest's son, and he started idol worship, the same idol worship he had moved against. Why? Because he didn't deal with it all. He left a little leaven. What did Jesus say? A little leaven will what? Will leaven the whole lump. Got to pick. We got to choose. If we're going to go for it, let's go for it. Let's get all in. Let's serve the Lord with our whole heart, not a part of heart, not just a little bit, but all of us. Let's, let's, let's give it all. It says, For Jazakar, the son of Shemaiah, Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servant, struck him. So he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So we have a guy starts, the fruits of revival begin, but he doesn't take it all the way. He doesn't go as far as he could. And as a result, at the end of his life, his heart is hard. He turns back to idolatry. He kills the son of the man who raised him, who saved his life, who spared him, and who set him on the throne and made him king. And it's all because he didn't tear down the high places. There's no part in. There's no little on. There's no, I'm a little bit of a servant for the Lord. I'm in or out. If I stay a little in, I'm ineffective. And in my ineffectiveness, I would do more damage than I do good. We still have opportunity. The judgment of God hasn't come. We still have opportunity to share the love of jesus christ with people who need to hear it but we will not ever do it until we make the decision to bow the knee in submission to god and begin to tear down those things in our life that separate us from him all those little sins we think are okay and rather than spend our energy and effort pointing at the sins outside of the church that are a problem we need to think about the ones that are inside the church that we're not dealing with. Make it right. Become an effective laborer against what the enemy is doing. And God will give revival. We'll read about it. It does come. The reasons why revival is so far distant from itself 
is because of the level of submission that's required in the heart of men and women to allow God to use them that way. A lot of people don't want to do it. They don't want to turn away from their lies. They don't want to turn away from their backbiting, their gossip. They don't want to turn away from the division they cause between brethren. And so in the heart of the church, there exists things God hates. And when the church will look and say, we have high places we still need to deal with. And we corporately come together and say, let's tear those down. I'm going to tear this down in my life. Then we will see the power of God moving through our lives. Then we will see hearts and lives change and turn toward the Lord. Then we will see God move in power in our lifetime. Until then... We still sit at the table deciding whose side are we on. When Jesus comes, I want it to be clear whose side I'm on. We need to make those changes. Commit to it. don't have to be perfect. I just have to change my mind. And God will change my heart. But I got to change this. How I look at those things that are in my life. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for what your word delivers. Lord, and we're faced. We're faced with a challenge that says, will you stand? Will you stand? Nehemiah goes out and he takes the children of Israel to to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But it's not easy. They have, to, they have to build with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They have to do battle every single day. No day without battle. But soon they discover by giving themselves away that they're able to accomplish something great. Be part of a bigger story. Be part of something that you couldn't even imagine before. For God is able to begin a work with a seven-year-old. But we have to choose our lifelong to tear down the high places and to offer ourselves wholly and completely to him. Lord God, we pray that you would move in our midst. God, we pray that you would show us individually where where am I off? What, what am I allowing in my life? What am I get, excusing myself for while I look at the sins of the world? What is the sin within the church, within me, within my life, that I'm just saying, oh, that's no big deal. And may we do battle with it when we realize that your word declares the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. By your spirit, give us the victory as we, your people, choose to make our stand for you. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.